This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday the 12th of May. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with tensions growing as more civilians are killed. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has controversially been elected President of the Philippines, and in the UK, Parliament saw the Queen's speech, opening a new session of parliamentary business. This week, we'll be thinking about Beergate and Eurovision. And we'll also see what else we get on to, as always. Uh, we have a shorter show this week um, with our guests, but it's quality, not quantity, that counts, or at least that's what our guests' agents told me. Uh, joining me this week, we have Julian Bagini, Academic Director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Hi, Julian. Yeah, hi, Simon. Hi, I hope my agent didn't say that, because my, my agent's uh, me for these purposes. Really? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, that was just a joke, everyone. Julian, Julian doesn't have an agent. Uh, but Rebecca's agent is fierce. Uh, Rebecca Roach, Senior Lecturer at Royal Holloway University. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for having me back. Uh, uh, both Julian and Rebecca have their own blogs and podcasts. Julian's personal site has a wealth of goodies, and as some of you may know, Rebecca podcasts as the academic imperfectionist. And joining the three of us, last but by no means least, Graham Forbes, who's Head of Department here at Kent. Hi, Graham. Hi, nice to see you. Um, great to have all three of you uh, with us. Um, I'm going to start uh, first item today. Let's think about beer. As people in the UK will know, the leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, has been embroiled in Beergate, allegedly having had a beer and curry with colleagues in the evening as he worked in Durham on 30th of April 2021. It's alleged that this wasn't a real work do. The gathering was more akin to a party, thus breaking COVID lockdown rules. The Durham police have now reopened the investigation. Sir Keir insists he's done nothing wrong and has offered earlier this week to resign if he's fined for a breach of the rules, saying that standard and decency in public life matter. Um, so I think there's more than a whiff of politicking going on here from the Conservative Party and their friends in the media, although one, of course, could level the same charge when the Prime Minister was hounded and then, in fact, fined. Um, what I find philosophically interesting is that having offered to stand down if fined, Sir Keir Starmer is then immediately said to be doing this only to put the police under pressure um, as they investigate the allegation. Um, this cynical criticism is routine, uh, unfortunately. If we take him at his word, it seems hard to do the right thing in this circumstance right now and hard to be a good person in a non-ideal world. And that's particularly true for, for politicians. It isn't clear what else he could have done. Or, or is it? Should he have offered to resign? Was it the right thing to do? So those are kind of some interesting philosophical things buzzing around my head. Of course, the the major worry here is with parts of our national press, I think, um, and we might want to get onto that too. But I think that's um, those are my thoughts as an opening. So I don't know what any of the rest of you think about that. I mean, I, I like the way you framed it. It, it seems like a, a classic double bind, right? That no matter what you do, you're going to end up in trouble in some way. If you, if you show principle... Um, your virtue signaling or pressuring other people to respond to you in a certain way. If you say nothing, you're being spineless. You know, these kind of structures 
are always important to look out for. And and there's a kind of broader question. So so there's the sort of particular political context of a, a leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. But generally, you think, how how could a decent person end up in politics, given that they would have to submit themselves to such structures? You know, like, even if you are a decent person when you come in, how can you stay that way? I mean, I always have those kinds of worries when I see these structures uh, at work in our political system. Okay, thanks, Graham. Julian, uh, Rebecca, I think? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, I think Graham's right. There's a, there's a broader issue, though, which is not just about politics, which goes back to the phrase Graham mentioned in passing there about virtue signaling. So I think ever since that kind of phrase has become current, it's become really difficult because basically to do anything which makes you look good in any way, you get that accusation, virtue signaling. And and I think this creates a problem. So I've been thinking about this. So I've got this kind of preliminary kind of a framework for thinking about it. So think of it as like a, a spectrum, right? At one end of the spectrum, we've got people who act purely for the show, for how it makes them look. And they don't really care about being good. They just want to look good, get approval. And, and that kind of virtue, that's where you get the, the what I call the genuine virtue signaling behavior, right? Moving along the spectrum, you've got people who actually they do care about doing the right thing, but they're still also doing that thing about showing off about it, getting the kudos. And you call that like virtue broadcasting, if you like. Yeah. So people do want, they do believe in doing their recycling and they do believe in in, in buying uh, organic food and all that kind of stuff, but they will bloody well let you know about it. So it's very annoying that they're broadcasting it, but they are doing the right thing. Then you've got what you might call virtue modelling, which is that you, you don't really care about people knowing about what you do, but they're going to <laughs> because you're doing the right thing and it's visible in some way. Uh, what are you supposed to do about that? You know, Nelson Mandela, what a bloody virtue signal he was. Well, no, he was a highly public profile person doing the right thing. Of course, people gave him credit for it. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got sort of people doing the right thing and actively hiding it from people, you know, virtue disguising, if you like. So there's this whole sort of spectrum of behaviours where people can do the right thing for different, sort of different motives. And it just bothers me that virtue, too many of that just all gets labelled with this thing of, of virtue signalling. And it seems to me in this case, um, the right thing to do is to say, you know, that consistent with what he's been saying before, he would, res- of course, he would resign if he was fined. And the fact that that has certain consequences in terms of how he is viewed and what people think of him is, is inevitable and in no reason, I think, a cause for um, criticism because the criticism would imply that somehow he shouldn't do the right thing, <laughs> right? Uh, that, seems, that seems crazy. And I mean, particularly one of the things about um, Sakir Starmer's kind of pitch to the voters is this is a former director of public prosecutions who, you know, represents um, integrity and law, law and order and you know his his previous career is very kind of central to the image he wants to protect of course of course he's going to like be compelled to um stand for integrity and and make this kind of move like po- just politically given his pitch to the voters he had no other option i mean it's also the right thing to do but you know he's he's very much backed into a corner given his prior commitments um, the only way of being consistent is to make such a move. I think something where um, there's been two separate aspects of this. One is kind of what, what's the right thing to do? And the other is sort of what are you showing? What, you, what message are you sending out? What, what are you signalling? And when people talk about virtue signalling, um, you know, in the kind of cynical, the first end of um, Julian's spectrum, it's 
it's quite a cynical thing. It's sort of you're you're signalling virtue while not being virtuous yourself. That's the sort of state and motivation that is kind of commonly viewed as a vice. But even if that's what's going on, and, and I don't I don't think it is. I, I think um, Starmer's motives are are genuine. Um, but but even supposing there weren't, I think that we can push back against this view that virtue signalling is always a vice. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I suppose the, the first thing that struck me about this story is, oh, wow, you know, kind of politicians used to resign all the time when they were disgraced. And, and we've moved away from that. It's kind of almost like, you know, people aren't batting an eyelid these days at things that 10 years ago would have been a resignation issue. And and so one thing, you know, that, that Starmer might be doing here is sort of flagging that you know hey we resign when we when we do something wrong and kind of raising the raising the possibility of this kind of bringing it back um after its period of um being less fashionable um you know that that might be a good thing regardless of his motivations in that it might lead to the public raising their expectations of um politicians behavior and so on and i guess this sort of thing is sometimes we call this uh, you know, in kind of less public context, like setting an example. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're trying to raise children with good table manners, then you might kind of, when you're sitting down to eat with them, sort of be more mindful of your own table manners than you would be if you're eating alone. I mean, you might kind of lick the plate when you're eating alone, but <laughs> if your children are there, you kind of want to set a good example. So, I mean, that's kind I, I of. I feel seen, Rebecca. Yeah, me. I, I'm. I'm definitely not bringing that example from my own experience. But yeah, I mean, in in that sort of situation, we think that's the right thing to do, right? Because we recognise that there's a value in signalling what you ought to do, even if it, even if you kind of don't live up to those standards yourself. So I think that you know, while much tends to be made of virtue signalling as a vice, you know, virtue signalling as a vice when your your own motivations and and the standards by which you live don't add up to the ones you're signalling, I don't think that's always the case. One thing that I I sort of thought about when you were saying that I'm mean, going entirely agree with that I think that's it exactly right but the the idea that there used to be this different norm in place where people would resign and indeed governments would collapse the thing that seems to have made the difference is probably the fixed term parliaments act where it's just more difficult for a government to collapse now that that they have to collapse if there's um, rather than just a, a failure of a vote of confidence, there has to be a, like a special other measure. And as we saw with the Theresa May government, you could just get a zombie government where no one supports them. They can't get anything done, but they but no one wants an election because they can't afford it. And so it's kind of interesting the the interplay between the norms, which certainly Boris Johnson deliberately undermining in, in various ways with the proguing of Parliament and. And, and so on. Like it's clearly been a strategy for him to change the norms and see what he can get away with. The the strategy of sort of quite, you know, setting an example and quite deliberately embodying um, a set of norms. I can see that strategy, but I, I also sort of wonder, given the structures in place, how effective this is going to be, how how effective it can be um, as, as a strategy. Like is, is just good modeling of norms enough to make a difference in these kind of structures where you've got double binds that people are facing and structures that disincentivize governments collapsing over sleaze. Go back a bit to what Rebecca was saying about um, virtue signaling not always being a vice. I mean, those of us who think that perhaps one of the primary functions of morality is the regulation of social life and so that we can all live together 
harmoniously. I wonder whether perhaps, you know, people get too obsessed, perhaps because of the sort of Christian background, particularly the Protestant one, on, on you know, what individual motives are. Now, I mean, I think there are aspects of the good life, of ethics, where the cultivation of good character in the individual is important. I think, think that is important. But if we're talking about morality in that public uh, respect, what really matters is that the right norms are followed and obeyed. And, and motivation is really kind of secondary. Uh, the, the problem with virtue signaling is only when uh, the kind of norms that people are uh, displaying and practicing and promoting are the wrong ones, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're doing it to, to appear good, but it's not. Not only is it superficial; it's actually it's actually wrong. They're they're they're, they're virtue signaling the wrong thing. They're 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 getting around a popular cause, which is perhaps not um, the right one. But you know, when people are sort of like being seen to do the right thing, and it is the right thing, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't care at all about it, but perhaps we shouldn't care so much if the reason why you know my uh, local neighborhood has massively increased its you know uh, renewable energy and recycling and all these good things is is simply because most people there want to keep up with the joneses on theirs it doesn't really matter a great deal <laughs> yeah it'd be better if they did it for the right motivations obviously but actually the most important thing here is that they do it yeah there's this issue it's, it um what philosophers call the doctrine of double effect comes in here, doesn't it? You know, this, this question of if you do something and intend sort of bad consequences to follow, that's part of your motivation for doing it, that that might be morally different to doing the same thing, foreseeing that those bad consequences might follow, but um, not intending them. So, uh, so that might be the difference between... Um, taking your child to be vaccinated, knowing that they're going to experience pain, but kind of doing it anyway. And, you know, you're sorry, they're going to be stuck with a needle, but there are benefits. And taking your child to be vaccinated, like not caring about the health benefits, but kind of just because you want someone to stick a needle in your child. Um, I mean, the first is like a good responsible parent, but the second is kind of quite disturbing. And I think where it fits in here is, you know, people argue about uh, the doc the doctrine of double effect and and it sounds like you know this sort of thing is what Julian was just touching on you know sort of how much does it matter what somebody's motivations are you know should we just care about the consequences and you know if good consequences follow from insincere even insincere virtue signaling then um, perhaps we shouldn't mind about the motivations or perhaps the motivations are important so we could we could you know th this I guess adds another layer uh, to this sort of, you know, the spectrum that Julian described at the beginning, where you're kind of, you you might or might not be motivated to do the right thing, and you might or might not care about signalling whether you're whether or not you're doing the right thing. And then there's other this other question about what your motivations are. Like, are you motivated by doing the right thing, or is it just you know a side effect of um, the the benefit of being able to show what a good person you are? So, so which I guess you know shows that there's a lot to think about in this sort of issue. So, so just to bring it back then, Rebecca, that, that's really helpful from, from all of you. So thinking then about the case of Sakir Starmer, I mean, we touched on it a little bit. So where do you think it lands? Because I introduced it as kind of like, there's obviously going to be cynical criticism from some parts of the press, which is depressing, but expected. Keir Starmer talks about decency and standards in public life, which I mentioned. I think you touched on this as well, Rebecca. So where do you think that this particular case is landing then on this, on this more complicated 
a set of ideas that Julian started with and then we're complicating with motivations. Where, where, where do you think he's landing? The way I see it, I think, is that he's, he is genuinely motivated by doing the right thing. He's not completely cynical. But in addition to that, this is politics. You know, sort of nobody's doing anything without taking into account the, you know, the, the implications in terms of what the public might think about it, what consequences might follow, how it might be interpreted and misinterpreted. So, I mean, I'd say it's a, it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. I think one real complication around this is that motivated to do the right thing, <laughs> well, that's on several dimensions. So I don't know how many mm-hmm. listeners and you are familiar with Primary Colours. There was a book and then it was a film. And yeah, I think I a lot of people, so it was like a fictionalised version of stuff that went on in the Clinton era. And a lot of people took that to be kind of a sort of devastating expose of the deep cynicism of the sort of, you know, the new politics. And I really didn't see that at all. <laughs> Rather, what I saw was that there were people who genuinely wanted to bring about political change, right? So they had a very sincere and virtuous motivation. But they believed that in order that goal was so important that other sort of like ethical shortcuts had to be to be made, you know, that, uh, that in other words, for the, for the greater good, it was it was worth doing um, certain things. In, in the film, they're actually quite extreme and, and, and awful. But you know, in, in real life, you, you can imagine this. So if you're someone like a, a, a Keir Starmer, for example, you genuinely want to do the right thing. You may you may well be in a position where you think to yourself, if I kind of fall, if I sort of fall on my sword for the sake of a principle, um, on the one hand, I'm doing the right thing. On the other hand, I might be making the possibility of the kind of better government that is most important less likely. So you kind of have a virtuous motivation to sort of like, as it were, try and cover up some of your lack of of virtue. That's a possibility. Actually, though, in this case, I still really can't see what critics are saying he should be doing instead. You know, I mean, what 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 should he be doing? He should be not offering to resign. That doesn't seem to be very honourable. He 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 should be saying, well, let's wait and see. When he's been telling other people that that's not good enough, so. In this particular case, I actually don't think there's a, a dilemma. I think that it's completely whipped up uh, controversy uh, by people, and 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 it's fueled by this kind of pervasive social thing we've got now of just always being suspicious of motives, and and, and always kind of just basically dismissing what anyone does as being well. You don't really mean it. You're just trying to get your way. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? It's sort of a, what what you've just said. This this suspicion of motives. It's I mean, implicitly, it seems to suggest that there's this pervasive belief that, you know, contrary to what people like Plato thought, that uh, virtue is not its own reward, that doing the right thing is not going to get you ahead in life. And so we've got this kind of more cynical view that uh, the, the, the right thing to do is look like you're doing the right thing while actually doing something else. And, you know, that's something we can question, right? I'm sure some people, sometimes that's that's helpful, right? If you really want to get ahead, sometimes it's useful to kind of step over other people while you're doing it, but but not always. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation I had last year, I think it was about Machiavelli with some people, and I'm not anything of a Machiavelli scholar, but the rough idea was that he's got these these two sort of books where he lays out what the right thing to do is. One's if you're in a republic where people are motivated by the right kind of regions, in, in which case virtue is going to be its own reward. If you're in a republic, you should you should develop your character and and so on. If you're in a principality where it's just raw power that counts, and you know the the last thing you want to do is go around being nice, you'll just you'll get killed. Um, if 
if you're going to demolish your rival, make sure you demolish their whole family as well so they can't take their revenge. And then I got into this conversation. So are we saying that in the principality where it's just about power, the virtuous thing to do is be thoroughly ruthless? Or are we saying that there is still a virtuous thing which is being you know, nice and compassionate and generous and have integrity? It's just not going to work out for you in the Republic. And and so then we look at our systems and we start thinking, sorry, I'm not going to work out for you in the principality. So we start looking at our systems and work out, does our politics work more like a principality than a republic? Is it is it a case where it's just about who's got the money, who's got the power, um, and, and the whole kind of um, electing people based on manifestos is this, this nice lie we tell ourselves? Or is there this thought that we are genuinely engaged in this sort of democratic institution where we care enough about things like integrity and and motivation for those to be politically relevant, for those actually to be be rewarding? And and I often think about institutions, not just Westminster, but also, you know, inst- institutions that I've involved in. And like structurally are these ones where virtue plays the role it's supposed to in a republic, or is it something where virtue actively harms you? I like, I like the question because I think I think that um, there's a sort of an, an illusion that might be slipped into consciously or non-consciously in in, in ethics, which is somehow you know people we, we just find the right way to live. The right way to live is somehow can be divorced from the context in in which you are. And I think it's it's very clear that in different times and places different things are, are, are virtuous and vicious. It's not quite like that. There is a third option there. The, the, the Machiavelli one is like, you know, you've either got to be ruthless in, in the principality or you could be virtuous in, in the Republic. Confucius actually comes up with a, a third option. Um, so this is something from the Analects. So when government was virtuous, he served. When government was corrupt, he could roll up his principles and keep them in his heart. So the idea there is that in the principality, you don't sort of you, you draw basically that the, the virtuous person in that situation just has to kind of get on quietly because they can't be virtuous in public life. They, it's not possible. So you just retreat, live the quiet, quietly virtuous life. All tempted to do that, I think, at times, aren't we? Absolutely. Um, listen, let's leave that that segment there. Perhaps I'll, I'll just say that uh, in all the years I was dean of faculty at Kent. Um, I had a copy of Machiavelli's The Prince by my bedside. <laughs> uh, not not Confucius. Um, thanks, thanks very much, Sue. Listen, we'll see you in the uh, next segment when we'll be putting on our dancing shoes and our weird yellow wolf masks. And welcome back. This week sees the semi-finals and final of Eurovision, that grand slice of annual Euro kitsch. Um, Julian, you brought this to our attention. Do you want to say what attracted your philosopher's antennae to it, please? Yeah, I, I must admit, I'm not hugely attracted in general to Eurovision. You know, I think I think it definitely peaked in with Waterloo, about 1973 or whatever it was. Um, but in, in recent years in particular, it's become notorious for what known as political voting right so countries which have sort of like ties of of friendship tend to vote for each other and those that have ties of animosity uh, get voted against interestingly Wyomini, the uk is beginning nil point for quite a few years now um you know the rest we used to win quite a lot um and we haven't won for 25 years or something and people think that's largely because the rest of europe is, doesn't really like us anymore 
Uh, I can't imagine why. I mean, Britain has been nothing but friendly to the rest of Europe for, for decades, hasn't it? So this political voting is seen to be a bad thing. People should be voting for the songs, not on the basis of their allies. But this year, the favourite to win is Ukraine. I, I think I heard a snippet of the song. It doesn't sound to me like it's a, a banger, which would be a, a nailed on to win in normal circumstances. But obviously, with the situation in Ukraine, it looks like a lot of countries are going to be voting for it. Uh, this would be political voting. And I think a lot of people think this would be a good thing, right? I think a lot of people think it'd be great to show support for Ukraine for voting for their song, even if it isn't technically the best one. So I've got a few thoughts myself, but I won't say any more at the moment. So that kind of question, if we're trying to sort of assess the merits of something, a, a work of art or a work of kitsch or whatever it might be, you know, are, are there times when actually it is appropriate to apply criteria other than it's intrinsic quality if you like so i've got quite strong views on this in that i i think that the main redeeming feature of eurovision is its political <laughs> role that that i i mean i think it's it's just a brilliant invention um so so often people make these claims for the eu that it it was invented in order to preserve peace in europe and you are and then people go no no actually i think you'll find it's a, a trading block um, and it's just an economic thing. It's not really about... Pe- There's a similar... You might think that this is just a music composition um, competition run by Eurovision. But actually, in terms of keeping peace in Europe, I think it's it's one of the best possible solutions to this problem in that think of the other ways that, that you have as a nation of showing your brother nations that you're annoyed with them. They tend to be economic, that we... We start boycotting their products. This damages people's livelihoods and, re- you know, or they tend to be, you know, sort of military of some kind or, you know, that you just decide you're going to close the border between Spain and Gibraltar or something that, that you start saber rattling. The idea that you can just show that you're annoyed with people just by giving them nil point in a music composition that has comparatively little sort of wide scale, comp- you know, consequences for the the people of that nation like i think it's brilliant that's it's 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 exactly this kind of beautiful confucian ideal of having some rituals in place just so exercising restraint with respect to them can speak volumes in a way that you can't achieve without that ritual so i'm i i love the fact that you can you can get all of this political information without people actually needing to hurt each other economically or militarily or anything else. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it as, as soft power and a, and a beautifully like creative diplomatic tool. Mm, I love that. I love the, um, I, I'm sort of thinking like how much, how much nicer would the world be if political battles could be settled by song competitions? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. Um, I was thinking like, um, you know, I, I actually love the Eurovision Song Contest, but I also love sleeping and I tend to be um, sleeping rather than watching it. Um, but it's it's this kind of wonderful blend of the songs and then the voting and the voting is kind of slightly bitchy and, and backstabby. Um, and, and those two things together is kind of part of the kind of recipe for campness. It's like, you know, the, the, part of the excitement is, you know, is this, 
is the best song gonna gonna win or are people going to kind of use the opportunity to stab each other in the back and support their friends and so on and it's all sort of and, and that adds to the kind of theatricality about that and I think you know if it was swayed in one direction or the other too far, I think it would lose a lot of its magic. And if it's all about the quality of the songs and it was just like a serious vote on, um, you know, kind of musical acumen, um, it would be less interesting than it is. And if it was purely about the politics, it would be less interesting than it is. It's this kind of wonderful blend of both. And and the thought that, you know, kind of... um, Ukraine might win in a kind of show of solidarity and support from other countries is is quite wonderful. Um, that's that's like a sort of feel good story as far as I could, as as far as I can see it. And yeah, and I like the fact that Britain never does it well because we're horrible <laughs> politically. I, I suppose you know when we sort of initially before the podcast started um, discussing by email some of the issues around this, and you sort of is it wrong? to vote politically i think was one of the one of the things that came up and and i think no but but that if there was too much of that it would it would kind of destroy something there's like this kind of there's this golden mean of this kind of balance between music and politics that is part of the joy i think and there's something interesting about treating it almost like um a game in that it works because we kind of take the norm seriously. People are trying, it's not just political, people are trying to do songs that they think will do something interesting or or say something or like, they're really trying. It's, it's not just, we've got this ritual that we don't care about that's just for these other purposes. People are, are kind of participating it seriously. And then it has this layer on top. Um, so So much like you might play a game that doesn't really matter in itself, but the game's only entertaining because you try really hard not to fall over in Twister. So um, like Twister, for instance, clearly part of the point of Twister is that you get people in in kind of physical proximity to each other in a way that's potentially um, amusing or sexually tense or something. But if you go into Twister just trying to rub up against other people, you're doing it wrong. Like that's not entertaining anymore. <laughs> oh, thank God you told me, Graham. Uh, uh, Julian. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting here again is, is is a broader question of you know if we if we say we should judge things on their merit, which seems fair enough, then the question is, well, what what counts as merit? And I think that often we sort of artificially sort of like narrow the these things. So, for example. You know, if we're judging the merit of uh, an entry to a competition, the character, for example, of the of the people performing, is is that part of the merit or not? And people say, well, it isn't really. It's a song contest. But sure, I bet you, if the night before the Eurovision Song Contest, it turned out that one of the entrants was a you know a, a sexually harassing other contestants or something, we'd think, well, this is relevant. You're not going to vote for this person the same. You know. Um, so, so we we like, we like to try and compartmentalise these things. Imagine you can judge the merit of a song and a performance purely on the basis of what you see and hear in that moment. Or food, I, I think about this a lot in food actually, because you know so often uh, any kind of judging of food or restaurant, it's all based on the idea of blind tasting. You're you're meant to know as little as possible about it, other than what it tastes like when you eat it. This seems to me completely the wrong way to approach food. 
Um, you know, if something can taste really delicious, but if it turns out it turns out that it's been made by, in effect, you know, keeping animals in inhumane traditions, it becomes disgusting. It actually does become disgusting, rightly so. I remember many years ago when I was at school, we used to do this um, kind of community service type thing. We used to go and do the shopping for this woman in her 90s and she'd make these biscuits, these like Fiorentine biscuits. And yeah, in a, in a blind judging, they would be awful. But they were wonderful because they were made by hand by this woman who could barely see, you know, she could barely see what she was doing. She's still able to make these biscuits and that made them wonderful. So I think that we sometimes when when we say, oh, we should judge purely on merit, what we're actually doing is we're, we don't notice that we're really restricting what we count as merit in a way that isn't always appropriate. Mm, this reminds me of the um, uh, sort of discussion a few years ago, if you know, is it is it wrong to listen to Michael Jackson's music now after after what we know? And I suppose I noticed you, you didn't say, is it bad to listen to Michael Jackson's ah. music? <laughs> yeah, I guess that could be interpreted a few ways. But yeah, you know, um, when we when we talk about merit, you know, what exactly do we mean? Is uh, I suppose you know, is it just the artwork itself, or you know, kind of artwork loosely? defined here i guess but um or is you know the moral character and so on and, and maybe even sort of uh, more general factors than that are, are these things all relevant and yeah i mean if you people do like to know uh the story behind um particular creations don't they i mean that's part of the just thinking to last time i watched eurovision you know you kind of get to see what what was going on with the 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 people recording the song, um, you can keep up with it in the news. You can kind of read stories about personal lives of the artists you admire. That seems to all feed into our appreciation of or, or lack of appreciation of the arts, right? So, so when we talk about merits, um, you know, I think we can kind of ask, you know, do what? What do we mean now? What are we taking into account? Yeah. And I think I think one of the difficulties we have with this is the not very good at sort of holding things that are in tension together. So, for example, um, there's been quite a lot about Picasso. I think a new biography has come out, and you know, so we're we're having to recognise how what he's a pretty awful human being by the sounds of things. But you know, I think a lot of Picasso's work is absolutely amazing. Now, I don't know. It seems like people want to make this binary. It's like, are we allowed to enjoy Picasso or not? You know, and and. And it becomes a kind of reductio ad absurdum to say that just because you know he 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 was he was a bad person in lots of ways, therefore we can't enjoy his art. But I think it does change the way we look at it, and it should in a way. And I think that one of the things in which, you know, so if I if I go to a Picasso exhibition now, I'm going to have in my mind at the same time what is absolutely wonderful and amazing, and the realization that the person behind this wasn't so wonderful and amazing in lots of ways. And, and I, it should be possible to have those two things in mind at the same time. It's not about one cancelling out the other. It's about uh, entertaining them both. And, and that kind of, when we have that capacity, I think we have a more realistic and full appreciation of the human condition. It doesn't sound too pretentious to say that, you know, because that's what so much of life is about the, the 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 juxtaposition and the coexistence of the good and the bad and the bit bitter and the sweet. Um, one of the other things, perhaps, to bear in mind here is the things we were talking about earlier, where one where one finds oneself sending signals or setting an example that that act actually when we listen to music, increasingly this is a, a public act. You know that it gets recorded on Spotify or we we're voting for an act or we're 
sort of showing our musical taste to someone. And so our first personal enjoyment of something might quite commonly involve an awareness that we're also signaling something about our taste. And there it's going to be very hard to separate out considerations of merit from considerations of of morality, that you're you're signaling something about who you endorse in some way or another. So so I think not only when we're looking at things are we holding both those things in mind, but also when we're thinking about ourselves as signaling or setting an example, both of those things are going on. Okay, can I just throw a, a question? Because I, I agree uh, everything that people have been saying in the trend and that, that interesting distinction that Julian introduces to about, I mean, appreciation versus the kind of literal judging that we might see in, in, in Eurovision. So perhaps I should say at this point, I hate Eurovision. I really hate it. I mean, I like, I mean, Graham and I were talking about this in the corridor at work yesterday. So I really like Graham's opening thoughts about, you know, this is soft politics, soft power, better we do this than, than anything else. And it's a kind of release of, of, of anger. Great. I'm all for that. I just hate Eurovision. So <laughs> I mean, it, is it anything like one might describe as art? <laughs> Because we've got onto kind of Picasso and other things, and I'm just sitting here going, "It's just, it's just a big telly program with some people wearing weird costumes singing badly, right?" But was it ever claiming to be art? I mean, it's a pop no, music no, well, no, it's not. So, but I'm just interested in whether whether we think what what merits does it have? I mean, it's <laughs> it's a pop music one. competition, like yeah. that. Um, it's got merits as being a pop music content, you know. Yeah. It really is a competition in which people doing absurd things that occasionally are really catchy and will grace, you know, wedding dance floors in 20 years time take place, you know, that that one really needs to kind of lean into the kitschiness and 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 the idea that, that the kind of aesthetic goods that it's going for are not particularly ones associated with high art. The the merit that we're after here is a very culturally specific kind of merit that leans very much into the kitsch rather than something that Roger Scruton would have liked. You know, it's not a classical music competition. Now, he would have been a great judge on Eurovision. <laughs> Just everything gets nil point. Um, why wouldn't it? So, so for the for the for the non-estheticians among us, what, why wouldn't it be regarded as art? I mean, okay, I, I can accept it's it's you know there are different sorts of art. Um, Roger Scruton likes a subset of. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know what what wouldn't be what's not art about creating and performing songs and kind of dramatizing them on a stage in the way that we see in Eurovision so it would be much more likely to be something like craft in in that there's definitely skill involved um and definitely one can do it better or worse but we're not primarily looking at these things in terms of their sort of contribution to the development of music history, that these are landmark contributions to the development of music history. We're fine with them using techniques that are well-known well, that they're, they've got a good hook and they've, you know, um, they're catchy. You find yourself whistling them afterward. They're entertaining for the context, for the time. But we needn't be sending these up into space as examples of, you know, the highest achievements of culture. Um, so generally, when aestheticians are thinking about art, they're thinking about something that makes a kind of new contribution to the art world um, in a way that gets us to reconsider the very nature of art. There are lots of things that 
don't achieve anything like that standard. Um, I mean, I've got a, a picture on my wall in my office that I really like. It's one of my favorite watercolors. It was painted by my dad's best friend who became an artist and is of the farm my dad grew up on. It's not going to be art with a capital A. It's not, you know, I, I get these statisticians around to my office. They're not going, oh my God, I can't believe we didn't know about this. You know, we should all start doing viewings. To but it's a, a nice picture on the wall that's, that's well made that I enjoy. It, it's a piece of visual art with a kind of lowercase a in that it's a painting. Um, pop music is, is music, but it's not doing the kind of things that aestheticians want for sort of art with a capital A, where we're, we're then getting people to write dissertations about what a significant contribution it was. That's just not what Eurovision's in the game of. Well, do you think, I mean, so, so I can see that that might apply to individual songs in Eurovision. I think here's another song, but do you think like the, the the contest as a whole as a kind of historical event in music history that that might be something that future generations look back on with interest so I, i'd probably go go the other way actually rebecca from the implication of what you just asked so it's of course i started us on this saying you know is it art actually so i have a probably different view from graham i mean it's clearly not high art right um but i tend to have quite broad definitions of most things so actually i think it probably is art or at least some songs might be considered art so julian mentioned waterloo by abba which of course is arguably probably one of the most famous songs that have, that's come out of the eurovision song contest and you know abba have got a really interesting writers of music whether it's it's popular or not right but i think the competition itself i probably wouldn't class as art i mean it, it, it's, it's that interesting boundary between entertainment and art and it, and it kind of, you know, I don't like it, but, you know, lots of people, I, I acknowledge lots of people do like it, including my wife, right? And it does it does a job, right? Um, so actually, I'm, I'm quite interested in thinking that quite a few of the songs can be art, whether they're good or bad, slightly high, but mostly low, right, if we're going to make any of those distinctions but whether the competition itself i don't know whether it, whether i'd say it was art well i mean i think i think i think i think graham's way of putting it is 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 drawing the wrong line frankly i think he's he's distinguishing between what is really good art and what is just sort of perhaps mediocre rather than between art and not art right it's a really high art bar to, to say that it's only art if it's really pushing the boundaries extending that's what the best art does but a lot of a lot of art is mediocre right and so and the craft distinction as well I think that's probably become very much true of the Eurovision Song Contest because I think what people are trying to do is they're trying to push the buttons of popularity. So they are trying to craft something that, um, you know, can, can, can win. But, you know, historically, like, you know, there have been... I think the problem with Eurovision is it's been years since there has been a song which has had any longevity even in the pop world, right? There haven't been great songs. But within the pop world and the pop and rock world, I think there are... All sorts of examples of things which have moved forward music, which musicologists will be talking about. I mean, Dancing Queen, for example, is a song that musicologists have written whole PhDs on. Uh, and, you know, and popular music continues to evolve. People talk about, you know, rap and grime and all these kind of things, which are not particularly my thing. But the, the, these are things which have moved the forms of musical expression forward in genuinely new ways. And, and so... I kind of think that if you're going to use a distinction Graham's coming up with, first of all, I don't think it does um, separate out pop from the rest of art. I, I very much wasn't claiming that. So no. I, I, I want to sort of clarify. So I'm thinking that the pop competition that Eurovision is, isn't for doing that. Though, of course, there are pop songs um, that do that. But often you, you, 
I mean, it's it's not the kind of thing that would get entered into Eurovision that does that mm. in many cases. You have concept albums, you have prog rock, you you know, like um, the pur- the purpose of doing that tends not to be what Eurovision is for. But I'm I'm very happy to concede that there's you know musically absolutely brilliant pop songs. Yeah, Good. for the record, just in case anyone starts writing into Graham at his Kent email address, he was nodding and shaking his head at the appropriate moments uh, <laughs> as, as Julian and Rebecca were talking. Um, so, Julian, what, what do you think then? Do you think, um, having a start on this, do you think Eurovision is art? Oh, um, I think it may accidentally and occasionally be so. Um, uh, but I, I, overall, it isn't. But again, yeah, I think it's, it's, it is entertainment not my cup of tea necessarily, maybe I will tune in. But, you know, I just think it, one of the main things about this discussion for me is, you know, that I, I think aestheticians have always been a bit suspicious of them, frankly. And um, I think one of the problems is they sort of get too obsessed by trying to kind of draw a line around what art is and, and separate out art from non-art and from how to how to ass- assess art properly on, on narrow criteria. And I think that Forms of human creativity are much more embedded in the social fabric in complex ways, and and that's why it's no big. It's it's not a bad thing in this case. A a competition which is officially about um you know songs is actually as Graham says partly about soft power, and it's about community, and it's about having parties, and in this case, it's going to be about showing solidarity for a country which is being utterly devastated. I mean, one interesting thing about the the charge that the aestheticians are too obsessed by defining what art is. I mean, actually, I was I was in an aesthetics con- conference on Saturday, and I was speaking to the aestheticians there, and they were telling me that they, you know, think this attempt to define what art is is precisely the problem, and aesthetics needs to stop doing that. So there are some some sympathy within aesthetics on, on that point. But why do we care what art is? I mean, my favourite slightly jokey definition of art is the difference between art and craft is a zero on the price tag. Um, that, that actually the problem is we've got these sort of cultural structures that do make a distinction between art and craft and then create big financial incentives into be, being able to argue that your lot are artists. So um, Simon and I were involved in something during the pandemic where we um, created a letter arguing that stand-up comedians were artists because then arts, the Arts Council could support them during the pandemic. Um, if they're artists, they might be eligible for, for state support when their industry has been closed down. If they're mere entertainers, why would they need Arts Council support? I mean, so, so these kind of institutional things are what put pressure on us to draw these tight lines. And actually, one of the things we might want to do, if we agree with you, Julian, which I think I mean, we probably should, is think about how we set up those institutions not to create the pressure to have those kind of tight lines. Yeah, great. Uh, Listen, let's uh, leave um, that part there. And that uh, brings um, today's recording to a close. So uh, I'd like to thank all three of you. Um, Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you very much. This has been really Uh, fun. And Julian? Yeah, no, thank you, Simon. And uh, Graham? Thanks. Uh, And thank you all for listening and all being well, we'll be with you again next week for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm